from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Today on the show, stories about how pets become muses. I like pets. I think I'm on my seventh and eighth cat, not including all the ones I grew up with. And although I don't currently own a dog, I do enjoy barking like one. Not so bad. And I like watching them. In New York City, one of the great places to dog watch is the dog run in Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village. It's big and has this amazing variety of creatures, by which I mean both the dogs and their people. Lately, one of the human habitués of Washington Square Dog Park has become a dog world celebrity. Hi, are you Elias? Hey, how's it going? I went there early one chilly morning to find him. You've got a camera and and, uh, you look like you're 28, so you must be Elias. (laughs) Good to meet you, I'm Kurt. Likewise. Elias Weiss Friedman is the New York City-based photographer behind the blog The Doggest, which has 3.1 million followers on Instagram. I asked him to tell me about his one-of-a-kind gig and for some advice on taking doggest quality photographs of one's own dog. Most people think I'm joking at first, and they say, no, no, really, what do you do? Really? And I say, this is actually what I do. I realized, like, wait, no one's really doing this. No one's taking portraits of dogs and sharing with the world, kind of like Humans of New York or the Sartorialist for dogs. Right, right, right. Um, I I knew from day one that if I was consistent with it, that people would love it. And I'm I'm sitting here three years later having photographed 15,000 dogs. That's incredible. (laughs) I think it must be some world world record. Yeah. Is morning better, afternoon, evening better? Does it matter? It's all around there. poop and pee schedule. Of course. So uh, mornings, midday, and after work. And it, in New York, uh, I like to shoot on the weekends because the owners are more likely to be with them instead of at work. I mean, there aren't a lot of cats walking around, but there are some. And, and in New York, you get all kinds of, I mean, you get ferrets, you get Every, Lots of pets. You get everything, yeah. Do you shoot them? Do you photograph them or just stick to dogs? I photograph cats. I also run the Caddist, which is really? a, li- a little known thing. Oh, I'll, I'll check out as a cat it's, person. It's I'll check out the cat. The same premise as the doggist, but cats. And uh, you know, cats don't walk around in the same way dogs I know. do. I know. And they're also harder to photograph. I've found because they're more. They're not as they're generous. They're more cat-like. They're more cat-like. <laughs> they're not as generous with eye contact. Yeah, right. But That's I still. Why, 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 uh, are one of the reasons that. Cat people like cats because they're not quite so needy. Right, they're they're right. different. Yeah. yeah, different. I meant. Yeah. Yes. Um, you look like a normal person. You don't look Thank so you. weirdly Thank dressed. You. But let's go through how you're equipped from toe to. Okay. To head. Well, I'm wearing uh, working sort of cargo pants that I've destroyed about 15 pairs of. But underneath, I have knee pads, and I wear them underneath because I don't like to give away that I'm a yeah, 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 just yeah. a little bit more um, under the radar. Boots. Squeaky toy, uh, dog treats. And the, obviously a camera. 
Yeah, um, you know, this is all sort of slobber-proof. The back I have lens wipes for dog slobber. I have a pen, and I have sunglasses. So everybody who has a dog has taken pictures of their dog. Uh, now that you're the, you know, world professional at this, <laughs> what, what mistakes do they make? One of the mistakes people make is, is they're not willing to get down on the dog's level. You get all these pictures from the iPhone level of the dog's, top of the dog's head, and that's it's still a picture of your dog, but the way that is more impactful and compelling is on their level where it feels like they're bigger. Uh, I'm also tall, so it's easier for me to photograph bigger dogs yeah. because I don't have to get all the way down and... and uh, crease my neck a little you bit. Are you are tall. Vince Vaughn could play the older you exactly. in, the, in, the, in the biopic. I like that. Good. Um, it's like, uh, you know, going or, or whistling or, or making dog noises. Yeah, is one, that of, part of, one of my noises is a weird noise that makes people's heads turn. I have a lot of noises. That's a good start. I asked some public radio colleagues if they'd volunteer to bring their dog for a photo shoot with the doggist, and Delaney Simmons brought along her pup. Who, he's, he's, he's about as cute as a dog can oh, be. Yes. <laughs> this is Thatch. <laughs> and he's a, what breed is he, you say? You know, he's a rescue, so we're not 100% sure. He's, he's a little got some crazy. terrier? Yeah, terrier. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, terrier mix, probably like a little Brussels griffin. Nice. Yeah. And 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 almost not black, dark brown. I guess he's small. He's his his fur is a little not ragged. What do you call that? Shaggy, uh, scruffy, scruffy, scruffy. scruffy. Is right, exactly. Uh, is he a good dog? He can be. I guess you're saying he's not. Um, you he hesitated be, on that answer. He's very sweet. Um, is he but a good he, boy? Um, he yeah, he'll sit for you if you have a treat. Oh, he is a good boy. Would you look at that? He did sit. I guess you must have taken pictures of him. Oh my gosh, I have, you know, it's so funny because he's basically all black that it's really hard to get a good iPhone photo. With uh, black dogs, you need to have some camera settings that aren't available on the iPhone. Got it. Basically. You need a real camera. A real camera, uh-huh. exactly. <laughs> so, meaning what? So what? So if you have a, a real camera and you've got a black dog, what do you do to, to make Well, the camera, camera thinks or... that there's not enough light because it's black uh-huh. dog, so it, it opens up the shutter and it overexposes the dog. So you have to say, to say to the camera, actually, no, we're good. Basically underexposed. Can you show me how to, uh, uh, we'll use thatch, and, and you'll show me how to try to take Let's do it. a picture? Okay. Okay, so, so here we've got thatch. So if we create thatch over here, a little space behind him. So we, we got out of the sun, so now we're in just a flat, yeah. flat light flat situation. Flat light, right. Uh, so the first thing I like to do is establish trust between uh, myself and the dog. Let the dog smell you. You know, that's the way dogs sort of figure out who you are. Uh, Get down on the dog's level. Elias crouched down on his knees and leaned forward so that his camera lens was positioned right in front of this dog's face. Have something they want, whether it's a toy or a treat. You know, you have to capture their attention. Thatch. So he likes treats. I've already discerned that. Take that thing and move it around the lens because that's where you want them to look. If you get the lead just like that, yeah. Learn different noises, learn how to bark. The tennis ball's working? It's the treat that's working right now. Oh, you gave him a treat, or there's a treat There's a treat in my hand, see? Uh Aha, he knows that you got the treat. The nose knows. 
it's really that quick because I got him to sit. He looked right at me. Oh, yes. And um, reward the dog for sitting for you. Oh, that's good. That's good. And that was delicious. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the hidden treat, the tennis ball, and the little... That yes, dogs are pretty noise. dogmatic, yes, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> Next, graphic designer Sahar Baharlu brought her 10-year-old chihuahua, Frankie, to be famous for his 15 seconds. He's a little less energy than Thatch did. He's, he's, a, little, he's a little shaky. He's a chihuahua. He's a little cold. Oh, I've, he never, shakes, been, I've yeah. never been this close to a chihuahua. He, uh, he shakes whenever he feels any sort of emotion. Emotion? Yeah. I think really? he's, So it's not necessarily bad? Not necessarily bad. He's got a funny expression the way his he, eyes are sort of half open. Yeah, he, kind of SpongeBob square pants. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, so... What do we do? So all, right. all I've got here is an iPhone, which so, I think most people will have. So we're, well, if you feel like getting on the ground, then go for it. Uh, okay, why not? <laughs> he is a small dog, so this Should is I a, hide a, the a first challenge. Or, or, or uh, keep... I would run it by his nose quickly. Mm. And now, now is when you should be taking the picture. Okay. And <laughs> look at me, dog. What's it, what's her name? Frankie. Frankie. Look at me, Frankie. There you go. Oh. Yeah, and so you try to squeaky. Bomb. You could try squeaking this okay. above your lens. Here, Frankie. Look, Frankie. Frankie. Frankie! <laughs> Look at me. Mm. Unfortunately, Frankie was not excited by the treat or the toy. He mostly just hopped and scurried. Yeah, that's about the best we're going to do with Frankie. Yeah. He's not, not bad. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Elias. Likewise. This is great. Cheers. Thank you. Good talking to you. To see more of Elias's work and photos of Thatch, head over to studio360.org. You can follow the Doggist on Instagram and other social media. And there's also the Doggist book with pictures of a thousand of the many thousands that he has shot. Coming up. Step one you must train your cat to use a homemade cardboard litter box. The feat that's at least as challenging as herding cats. Start moving the box around the room, towards the bathroom. Do it gradually. You got to get him thinking. One of the jazz legend Charles Mingus's lesser-known works. The Charles Mingus Catalog for toilet training your cat. That's next in Studio 360. Studio 360. I missed you, Peter, and I love you. (laughs) I have never cried in a movie theater like I cried 25 years ago watching that final scene in Homeward Bound with my toddler daughters. So I like me, my sweet, sentimental dog movies. But you won't find any schmaltz in the riveting Hungarian film White God, which is an altogether different cinematic breed. The sheer number of dogs in the film is just staggering, 250 of them. And a lot of the time, the director keeps his camera low at canine level. The film is about a girl forced by her father to give up her beloved pet. Hagen. Abandoned and on the loose, he becomes a ferocious fighter and ends up leading a band of feral dogs who rise up against the humans who mistreat them. 
One reason I'm more of a cat person is the training part. I don't have the patience or time to teach an animal to sit or anything else. So how on earth do you get 250 dogs to do anything at once and one to give a performance central to a movie? We sent KCRW's Matt Holtzman to spend some time with the star of White God and his trainer to find out. It's a long road from total obscurity to a packed screening at the Sundance Film Festival. This is Bodie. Bodie and his twin brother Luke were discovered by animal trainer Teresa Miller. Their collars on? Okay. I met Teresa and another trainer named April Morley in a beautiful park in the outskirts of L.A. Hey, says, Hi, I know you. You don't have to love dogs to love these dogs. They're knee-high, they're black and tan, and they have curly tails and crinkly faces. Yeah, they're really unique in their appearance, you know, and and side by side you can really see the difference, you know, but uh, it's less obvious on film having, you know, just seeing one at a time. They have incredibly expressive faces. Mm Mm-hmm, absolutely. What are they, really? Uh, They're actually Sharpay lab mixes. I must say, they're a lot smaller than I thought they'd be after seeing them in the movie. But what's funny is that's what they say about actors. It puts 10 pounds on you whether you like it or not. (laughs) Teresa was given a tough challenge by writer and director Cornel Mondrushko. Like any director, he had very specific ideas about his lead actor. He wanted the naivety of the dog, a new character who hadn't acted on screen, and really to treat it more like a documentary. Mondrushko wanted a dog that would look lost and alone wandering the streets of Budapest. And an experienced animal just wasn't going to pull that off. The problem was Teresa only had a couple of months to find two of these one-in-a-million dogs because animals like people have different kinds of personalities suitable for different kinds of scenes. You also need multiple animals because they can get tired and distracted during shoots and you can swap one for the other. So with time running out, Teresa frantically searched the web. And finally, she thought she found a pair of dogs that just might work. She got in her car and headed to Arizona and prayed. I'm just like, God, please make this work, you know? She found the 10-month-old puppies in a small mobile home living with a family and three other dogs. She watched them play with the other dogs and especially with the kids. To see them interact with the children, that was a huge selling point because they needed to work with this little girl. And uh, I called the director immediately, showed him a videotape, and he says, do you think they can do it? She said, absolutely. But then she got home from Arizona. And I put the leash on him, and it was like a rodeo. I mean, bucking, bronking, screaming, never been on a leash before. Just so he wouldn't hurt himself on the driveway, I move over to the grass so he can relax on the leash and get to know it. They'd never seen grass before. They jumped up, didn't know what the hell the grass was. And that was a scary time for us because I didn't know what we'd gotten into (laughs) because my director thinks we're going to do a movie with these dogs. Teresa had just 16 weeks before these two dogs were supposed to fly to Budapest and star in a major motion picture. And so they went to work. Bodie. He's standing right now on his mark, which today happens to be like an eight-inch square piece of uh, uh, wood. And uh, the reason we use that is because sometimes he has to be in frame. Hey, watch. He's good. Uh, Sometimes he has to be in frame and... uh, I can't have a trainer starting him or releasing him because it's in the frame of camera, and so we'll use his mark. In Teresa's hand is a very realistic-looking rubber chocolate chip macadamia nut cookie. We've got our actress sitting at the picnic table in the park, 
a little strange that the dog would bring her a cookie in his mouth, but just an example for you. <laughs> I wouldn't take the cookie, but <laughs> for this particular scene, it's okay. So he's got the cookie. Take it. Hold it. Go with her. Go with her. Stay. Hold it. You can take it, April. Good. Speak at her. Speak. Good. Don't forget that not only do these dogs have to be trained for their roles, they had to be trained to work with 250 other dogs. Over in Budapest, the man in charge of those dogs was Hungarian trainer Arpad Hollish. While Teresa was working with Luke and Bodie, he and his army of trainers were rounding up a huge group of strays from local shelters and trying to turn them into movie extras. I never imagined we could put 250 dogs together to run through the streets of Budapest, and it was Arpad who said that he could do it. Did you tell him that you didn't believe it could be done? Absolutely. I didn't hide it from anybody. <laughs> For his part, Arpad wasn't so sure that Teresa could train her dogs to do what director Cornel Mandrushko was expecting. Hagen starts off as a little girl's pet, then wanders the streets in fear, and then he turns vicious. And in the end, he's the leader of a pack of wild dogs. If you've seen the movie, it's really hard to imagine these sweet dogs playing tough. Well, hi, Bouncy. You're such a silly. Hey, what are you talking about? It's interesting because as silly as Luke is, and he really is the nut, you can just tell in his mannerisms, he is the best one at looking aggressive. He is the one that shows all his teeth and raises his lip, and his brother gives more of a low-key growl and serious look without showing his teeth. Finally, after months of figuring out which dog would play what scene and training them to do it, Teresa, Bodie, and Luke were ready to fly to Budapest and mix it up with 250 strays in White God. We had so much to do with the Hungarian team of trainers, and we'd never met, and we had a language barrier. And I knew how much we had to accomplish together. And, of course, it's going through my mind, how accepting are they going to be, because here's these American trainers coming over to do their job. And... Um, that's where the concern came in. And they were amazing. After a couple of weeks of working with the pack, they began to shoot. And everything went great. Even the scenes where a sweet little hogan turns mean. You might think it's just a, a badass dog, a junkyard dog or a dog that's mean. And these guys aren't at all. They're acting. Yes, they're acting, absolutely. But can dogs really act? Well, at times when Hagen looks at Lily in the movie, you'd really think so. And there's definitely a difference between that kind of interaction and the tricks Hungarian trainer Arpad Hollish taught some of his dogs. I mean, he taught some beautiful things. I mean, when you see his dogs in the tunnel and you see them getting shot and that dog rolls and stops, he taught his dog to do that. I've never seen that taught before. As for Bodie and Luke, no doubt they turn their wet noses up at such simple theatrics. And because of their acting range, Teresa Miller is expecting big things from them. It's been two years now, and they've gotten one other job, and it was for a rapper named Waka Flocka. And, of course, my dogs played abandoned dogs in a uh, mobile home park, and uh, which is ironic. Clearly, after directors see them in White God, they're going to be able to pick and choose their next roles. White God came out in 2015, and Matt Holtzman is the host of The Document, his great, quirky podcast about documentary films. Hi, 
Early in his career, the jazz composer and bassist Charles Mingus played on a live album actually called The Greatest Jazz Concert Ever, along with Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Bud Powell, and Max Roach. But around the time that came out, Mingus was also working on another remarkable work in a different medium. Remarkable, even groundbreaking, but little known. Jody Avergan explains. We know this masterpiece exists because of a photograph. Charles Mingus likely took it himself sometime in 1953 or early 54. It's a photo of his cat. There it is, jet black with a white belly and chin, and he's perched on the side of a toilet bowl. He's got his tail in the air and a look of content concentration on his face. It's a look that's best described as the kind of look a cat would have when taking a dump into Charles Mingus's toilet. The photo is on the cover of a small pamphlet, which you could order directly from him by mail, called The Charles Mingus Catalog for Toilet Training Your Cat. Step one, you must train your cat to use a homemade cardboard litter box. Start moving the box towards the bathroom. Do it gradually. You got to get him thinking. Then you put the box on top of the toilet. Mingus gets extremely detailed. Cut a small hole in the very center of his box, less than an apple, about the size of a plum. Right away, he will start aiming for the hole. It goes on and on like this. And after a week or two, you will realize that you have won. The most difficult part is over. Mingus concludes with some crucial advice. The main thing to remember is not to rush or confuse it. Good luck, Charles Mingus, 1954. In 2014, in a two-bedroom apartment in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, we're putting the Mingus method to the test. Judy, cool. nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So who is this? This is Dizzy. Dizzy. Dizzy's a five-and-a-half-month-old kitten. We're going to train this cat to use the toilet. Licking the microphone. <laughs> Dizzy is that perfect mix of trusting and playful and super cute. And his owners, Kevin and Nicole, are going above and beyond. We have been playing a lot of Charles Mingus for him. Awesome. I asked Mingus biographer Gene Santoro about that. What song would he play for the cat? You know, to get him in the mood. If you put on something like Better Get It In Your Soul, the cat's likely to not be too happy because it's raucous. You might want to listen to Farwell's Mill Valley. It's a very, very beautiful piece. As you flip through the catalog, you can interpret it in two ways. One, it's the work of a crazy musician stuck in his railroad apartment. When I listen to Mingus's music, sometimes I think of it as sort of a map to his fevered mind. The pamphlet, it reads the same way. But it also tells a second story, that of a creative mind in overdrive. That nagging urge that led to his cat training obsession is the same thing that drove his musical genius. There isn't a disconnect. He was doing jazz, so there was improvisation involved, but when he was writing the music for, like, the heads and the themes and things like that, he was attempting to notate 
down to the breath control exactly what each note in those themes would be for every instrumentalist. And this is the period we're talking about where this gets generated. It's that same sort of like step by step, I'm going to take you through this and then you're on your own. Do you have cats? I inherited a cat from my daughter when she left home, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> does it use the toilet? Uh, it does not, no. It strikes me as a longtime cat cohabitor or whatever I am that it actually makes sense in terms of the cat's psychology. Everything is very gradual. You know, it's not a dog. You can't hurt it. <laughs> <laughs> this project, do you think he thought he would make money? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's why he was selling it. He'd talk about it after gigs with people or stuff like that. Imagine that moment. A smoky jazz club, 1954. You go up to chat with the legendary bass player. You want an autograph or maybe a little musical advice. But before you know it, he steers the conversation towards getting you to buy his pamphlet about toilet training a cat. A couple weeks into the Dizzy experiment, I check in with Kevin and Nicole. They're still on step one. Yeah, we woke up this morning to a surprise on the bath mat. And then a few days ago, he just sort of missed the box. You know, there's an easier way to do this. On the internet, you can buy a kit. And it's basically a modern version of the Mingus method. But Kevin and Nicole are following the catalog. Cardboard box, newspaper litter, patience, and time. It took me about three or four weeks to toilet train my cat. Nightlife. Um, it's a little bit of a hassle. It just requires a little bit of undoing of bungee cords and moving things around and newspaper flying everywhere in the bathroom. Do it gradually. He's so cute, so it's worth it. Mr. Mingus, what do you think of this eviction today? I think America is beautiful. As the 50s moved into the 60s, Charles Mingus's life began to fall apart. There's this documentary from the time, which shows him being evicted from his apartment. Charlie, do you think you're being persecuted because you're a jazz musician? No, I think I'm really being helped. I really think I'm being helped. In what way? I don't know. I think that uh, maybe people get to see what's going on. His belongings are all over the sidewalk. He's walking down the stairs, holding a shotgun, babbling erratically. His whole scene had collapsed musically. He was doing a lot of pills. Later in life, Santoro says his children, visiting their father in Los Angeles, discovered a collection of bottles filled with urine. He told them, I think, at different points that these were like experiments he was doing, but he was out of it. Mingus wrote some of the greatest jazz of the century, but he never really made any money off of it. Suffice it to say, he never made any money from the catalog either. It's been three months since I first met Dizzy, so I called to check in on the progress. So, <laughs> do you have bad news for me? Bad news for you in that um, the, the Mingus potty training method was, was a failure, unfortunately. Um, Dizzy never really got used to the idea of using the laptop box with newspaper in it. He just like, was not into it. So we actually sprung for like, uh, I don't know, can I say brand names? Is that or am I, like, endorsing them then? I don't know. So, like, Say it. City Kitty. City Kitty is, a, is the brand. There, I said it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I feel a little bit like a sellout, but uh, he, had trouble, he had trouble being on target. 
Well, look, you know, I don't think you're dishonoring the legacy of Charles Mingus or anything. I just think that your cat is not feeling it. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. All of public radio listening America is pulling for Dizzy to pull it off <laughs> one way or another. Well, good. Yeah, I hope so. We certainly are. Mingus was on to something. There's certainly a benefit to it, both spiritually and logistically in the household. And you're not going to throw out any of your Mingus records or anything? No, no, not at all. If anything, it has only it has only furthered my love of the man and his music. Jody Avergan hosts and makes podcasts for Five Thirty Eight and ESPN's Thirty for Thirty. Reading Mingus for us was the great actor Reg E. Cathy, who died in February, age fifty-nine. You may recognize him from The Wire, where he played the political operative Norman, or from House of Cards, where he played Freddy of Freddy's Ribs. At Studio360.org, we've got a very funny video of Reg reading Mingus's whole catalog. The main thing to remember is not to rush or confuse him. Good luck. <laughs> And by the way, have any of you successfully trained a cat using the Mingus method? If so, we really, really want to hear from you. Please send us some visual proof, a photo or video, to incoming at studio360.org. Coming up... Sitting next to Yo-Yo Ma, the cellist, and I said, you know, Yo-Yo, sometimes when I do a show, I look out at the audience and I think, I, I, I imagine the whole audience is dogs. And he said... I have that same fantasy. How an offhand comment led Laurie Anderson to start playing concerts for dogs all over the world. That's next on Studio 360. Multimedia artist Lori Anderson has always been kind of obsessed with dogs. The B-side to her 1981 breakthrough hit, Oh Superman, was a song called Walk the Dog. And in 2015, she directed a documentary called Heart of a Dog. It was sort of an elegy to her rat terrier, Lolabelle. When Lola Bell went blind, Elizabeth decided it was time for her to learn piano. So he set up some keyboards on the floor and she would run over and turn them on and start to play. Lola Bell played every day for two years and she got reasonably good. That is your dog, Lola Bell, your late Lola rat terrier, yeah. Lola Bell, yeah. from Heart of the Dog. She's uh, using a backing track, just in case you're, you know, wondering. She's playing the, the ry- rhythms on top and barking along. She's playing the rhythms on top? Yeah, the yeah. For an orthodox musician like Laurie Anderson, I guess it's a short step from appreciating music by dogs to performing in concert for dogs. They didn't really know what they were doing there. 
a lot of people who go to concerts don't know why they're there. You know, they're there because their friend dragged them there or something. But this happened because um, I was supposed to be giving a commencement address telling young artists, hey, don't worry about your student loan. You're going to wipe that out right away. And they're great jobs in the art world. You're going to get one right away. All this education is going to pay off. Anyway, I'm sitting there thinking, wearing my stupid mortarboard hat, it being really, it was way too hot. It was really boring. I'm sitting next to Yo-Yo Ma, the cellist, and I says, you know, Yo-Yo, sometimes when I do a show, I look out at the audience, and I think, I imagine the whole audience is dogs. And he said, I have that same fantasy. And I said, really? Are you kidding? So I said, okay, the first person who gets to do that invites the other, so... It's a much more complicated schedule than I ever had. And so I got to do this in Sydney in 2010. I thought a few hundred dogs would show up. Thousands of dogs really? showed up. Yeah, and it was at the opera house, so all the stairs were just covered, coated with dogs. And I have to say there are a lot of Australian dogs who just want to rock. They want to rock. And they're like, yes, yes. But they were totally polite. My favorite were the droolers in the front row. Drool coming out of their mouth, mouths hanging open. What am I doing here? Uh, but so sweet, you know. And at the end of this concert, you know, they had been so well behaved. I said, okay, dogs, just let's do a little barking here. Okay, little dogs. Let's start with the little dogs. If you have a little dog, get him barking, okay? Come on, guys. This is your turn. Usual ones just start. And they're little sharp barks. Come on, let's hear you. Oh, no, Nikki, barking, barking. Okay, mediums come in with our, our. Oh, let's hear it. Come on, you can do better than that. Okay, now, big ones. Come on, guys. And for five minutes, these dogs barked and howled and yelled. And I was like, I thought, I can die right now. So this is just like the most beautiful sound of like free sound. <laughs> let's hear it from the dogs again. Come on, let's make a little more noise. Come on. That piece was produced by Studio 360's Evan Chung. This year, Laurie Anderson released an album for people in collaboration with the Kronos Quartet called Landfall, and also published a new book of essays about her career, All the Things I Lost in the Flood. I had a conversation with her about all that that you can listen to at studio360.org. One of Americans' big moments of Cold War anxiety came in 1957 when the Soviet Union launched a satellite into orbit before we did, Sputnik. And then, a month later, Sputnik 2, which had a dog on board, Laika, a husky terrier mix they'd found on a Moscow street. Sending Laika into orbit had a scientific purpose, but it was also, even more, I think, a PR stunt. She even wore a little space helmet. The writer John Haskell has this tribute, part fact, part fiction, to the Soviet space dog, Laika. Once upon a time, there was a dog that wanted to be an astronaut. Well, a cosmonaut, really, because she was a communist dog. 
a Siberian husky taken in and trained by Soviet scientists. Her original name was Little Curly, but they called her Laika, which means Barker, because she made a lot of noise. And she made a lot of noise because she wanted to be the first dog in space. This was 1957. Sputnik was about to be launched, and because there wouldn't be much moving around in the capsule, the scientists were looking for a dog who could learn to be still. And Laika was willing to be that dog. She was willing to learn, or try to learn, her lessons. And by lessons, I mean the repeated behaviors that were meant to become habit. Aristotle called habit the foundation of virtue, and what he believed, I think, is that the value of an action lies partly in its ability to repeat itself, to become something more than just random. You don't hear the word virtue much anymore, and the word habit usually refers to something unwanted or out of control. But Aristotle, from the vantage point of ancient history, saw the development of habit as a way to move toward happiness. And that was all fine with Laika, except the habits she had were not the right habits. She excelled at running and barking and chasing her tail, but the Sputnik people were looking for a dog to be still. And although Laika wanted to oblige, her natural inclination, if there is such a thing, was to constantly be moving. She tried to contain or control that inclination, but there were other dogs who seemed to control it better. So when the scientists set out to select which dog would explore the universe, Laika was nervous. She was nervous when the young scientist took her to an open field behind the barracks and told her to sit. She could see the men by the fence watching her with their stopwatches and their notepads. And when her leash was removed and the scientist started walking away, she thought, okay, be still. And she tried. She tried to just sit there, but the young scientist continued walking away, and Laika felt the desire to move. Oh, and yes, she tried to contain that desire or fight that desire or work through it, and for a while she did. And when the desire faded, she thought she was over it, that she turned over a new leaf, but there was no new leaf. The desire returned bigger than ever, and she began to think that maybe she shouldn't fight it that maybe she should move, that her muscles might atrophy or that the man might abandon her. A million logical thoughts made it necessary for her to get up and move. And so she did. And when she did, when she ran to the scientist, of course it wasn't as wonderful or fulfilling as she thought it would be. But by then it was already too late. Her dream would not come true. Some other dog would go into space, and she would remain exactly what she would always be, a loud and useless dog. Except, the scientists were looking for more than just stillness. They could see her desire, and they valued her desire, and in the end, she was the one who was selected to be the dog launched into space. And when the day arrived, she was led out of her basement room, into an elevator, and up into the Sputnik module. The photographers came, lights were shined in her face, and because she understood what was wanted of her, she made the face we think of as a smile. Photos show her, wired to the black box recorder, one ear up, one flopped over, her paws happily crossed, surveying from her padded compartment the possibility of life in space. And then the lights were taken away. The scientists said goodbye, the capsule hatch was closed, and Laika found herself 
sealed in the darkness. And it wasn't long before she felt the vibrating of the booster rocket, the explosion. And then she felt herself being pulled both by the force of gravity and by the force of the missile rising up. And the next thing she knew, she was floating in space, out of the bonds of atmosphere. We don't know exactly what happened to her up there, but the several versions of events all boil down to basically the same thing. Although the famous satellite remained in orbit for 162 days, after less than a week of orbiting, Laika was dead. And whether it was the heat or the lack of oxygen or a poison inserted into her food supply to make her death less painful, Laika knew what was happening. And being a dog, she wanted to do something. She wanted to get up and move. She wanted to escape the wires and the microphones that were holding her in place, but there was no escape. And don't forget, it was almost entirely black up there, so she was blind, and there were no smells in her air supply, and the only thing she could hear was her breathing, amplified by her special helmet. And although she must have felt a certain amount of helplessness, as she sat immobile in her dark capsule, instead of thinking about helplessness, what she did was fall asleep. And in her sleep, she dreamed of habit. In the dream, she's being chased through the streets of a small Russian town. It's night, and when she hears the voices chasing her getting closer, she squeezes through a broken door. She finds herself in the kitchen of a small house, Two old people, a man and a woman, are sitting at a table near a stove. When they look at her, it's as if they expected her to be there. She hears a knocking on the door, and she hides under a bed. A young soldier bursts into the room, lifts his hand to strike the woman, and Laika, pressing her nose against the wooden floor, is trying not to move, trying to keep perfectly still, knowing that she has to keep perfectly still or the man and the woman will die. A small beetle crawls across the floor in front of her nose. She leaves it alone. She stays there, motionless, until the soldier changes his mind, spits, and then walks away. And I wouldn't call this a happy dream exactly, but it's basically optimistic. And basically, Laika was optimistic. She believed Aristotle's dictum about habit and happiness. And when she realized she was going to die, she decided to die for a reason. Because she lived in the previous century, the century of optimism, she dreamed of making the world a better place. It's a dream that we, now, in this century, have our doubts about, but Laika believed in possibility. She believed she was contributing to the collective knowledge of the human race. And so, as death began working its way into her system, she remembered the habits she'd learned. She listened to her breathing. She felt the microphone on her skin. She became aware of her heart, which was beating. And because she was harnessed in place, there was nothing to do but let her heart keep beating. Let the blood keep pumping. Let the signals from her heart flow as directly as possible into the small black box. Because she believed that someone would be listening, she stayed alive as long as she could. She was hoping the message emanating from her heart would be clear, wanting the world to hear not just the ticking of a heart, 
but the possibility that a heart might contain. The writer John Haskell. There's a version of that story in his book, I Am Not Jackson Pollock. Recorded on November 6th, 1957, the heartbeat of Laika, the dog, in Sputnik number two. We've talked this hour about art inspired by animals and even art performed for animals. But producer Sean Cole wanted to know, are other animals themselves ever actually creative? Well, there's a dog in Hamilton, Ontario, that can play the piano. Of course, it's just a little toy piano with blinking red lights that tell you when to hit the keys. There's also a dog in Brooklyn named Tillamook Cheddar that sort of draws with her paws, and really the rest of her body, too. Her, her art is de- definitely, a, there's a destructive element to it. You know, she definitely, she's very aggressive, and she sort of a, goes at it and attacks it. <laughs> Tillamook Cheddar has 38 professional gallery showings under her belt or collar, whatever. People have been training elephants to paint for years and selling those paintings. But is a painting by an animal an example of animal creativity? It certainly could be. This is Allison Kaufman, a graduate student in neuroscience at the University of California at Riverside. A couple of years ago, she co-authored a paper with her husband called Applying a Creativity Framework to Animal Cognition. It's very hard to say whether or not they're aware that they're creating art or creating something. But what what you can say is that it's definitely a novel behavior. The problem with the word creativity is that it can mean an awful lot of things. And the way scientists like Allison define it, being novel isn't enough. She says the behavior also has to be appropriate. So, for example, if I asked you to pave my driveway and you paved it with salami, that would be novel. (laughs) But it wouldn't be appropriate to the situation. Though it would probably get you a gallery showing with Tillamook Cheddar. But see, animals in the wild don't have time to express their feelings of existentialism. They're too busy coming up with creative ways to survive. Still, there are times when some animals look like they're surviving artistically. Like the Australian bowerbird. It's the males who build the nests. And studies of these bowers, is what the nest is called, have shown that ones that are decorated better and with more novel things tend to be more attractive to females. Bright, shiny items, very uh, bright colors of items, at some level tell the female that this is a male that's capable of finding these things. It also seems to be like a recognition of aesthetics, like brighter colors, different textures. Do you know what I mean? Like they're seeing that stuff and and responding to it in, in some way. Absolutely, and they are in some way. What about an elephant that's been trained to play a percussive instrument improvisationally and then does so? Interesting. Um, That's a very interesting question. This is a track off of Elephonic Rhapsodies, the second album of a group called the Thai Elephant Orchestra. They're elephants, 
holding mallets in their trunks and banging on huge instruments. The classic instrument is a big xylophone-like instrument. Um, Thai people call it a renat. David Soldier designed the instruments and helped teach elephants at a conservation center in Thailand how to play them. They were already painting, he says, so music wasn't much of a stretch. He's even got a soloist or two. For instance, the second cut on Elephantic Rhapsodies is uh, verbatim one of the elephants, Pung, improvising by himself. He wasn't, you know, taught this melody. He just made it up, playing it on the Renat. Apart from being a composer, Soldier runs a neuroscience lab at Columbia University, so he's really the perfect guy to ask whether animals are creative. Being a biologist, of course, I'm going to jump on you and say, well, we're animals too, so... Non-human animals, I mean. Elephants. Do they have a concept of art? I don't know. You know, I mean, do they enjoy doing it? Yes, I believe some of them enjoy doing it. They'll walk up and do it spontaneously. Is that because they're bored? Yeah, probably. I think that they were... (laughs) living a more natural life, they wouldn't need to. I could say that about a couple of human musicians I know. To me, uh, personally, the science of this is the fact that they do it at all, that they make music. To me, that's the finding. Does that mean the elephants are being creative? Well, Soldier says, is the sixth chair violinist in the orchestra being creative? What about the kid who's forced to play trombone in the marching band? And you know, These are more like zen cones than questions that science can answer. So I'm just going to settle this issue right now. Are animals creative? Yes. Yes, they are. Sean Cole is a producer for This American Life. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our show this week was mixed by... Whitney Jones. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. If he hits that flush knob accidentally and sees that it cleans the bowl inside, he may remember and do it intentionally. (laughs) Thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Oh, Miss Piggy appears angry. Next time on Studio 360. Angry? No, your star is not angry. She is merely disappointed. Why the Muppets matter? They're people. They're people. They're just people. You know, one of them's a frog, one of them's a pig, but uh, but they're basically people. A special new American Icon story about the Muppets. Next time on Studio 360.